audio teaching is provided by segolab.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. All right, welcome to session 20 of our series on Luke Acts. This session, we're going to be continuing where we left off last time, looking at Acts chapter 15. So uh, this chapter of the book of Acts describes uh, this event where the apostles and elders gather together to discuss the role and status of Gentiles, Gentile believers. Uh, More specifically, they meet to discuss whether or not Gentile followers of Yeshua need to be circumcised in order to be saved. The council, of course, concludes with a firm no. Uh, Gentiles are not required to be circumcised in order to be saved. Instead, James concludes that the Gentile believers are to follow these four prohibitions. So uh, last, last week we were looking little bit at these four prohibitions that we find in Acts 15, uh, to abstain from food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from strangled things, and from blood. So uh, last time we, we also looked more closely at what the Torah says about circumcision and how there were competing interpretations of uh, what the Torah has to say in first century Judaism. So uh, some Jews believed that a Gentile who wants to follow the God of Israel must be circumcised and become Jewish in order to be saved. Others rejected this idea and believed that it was unnecessary for an adult male Gentile who wants to follow the God of Israel to be circumcised. Uh, We see uh, variations of these two positions in different texts from the Second Temple era. The apostles argued for uh, something similar to the second position. They saw circumcision as unnecessary for Gentile believers. Uh, I would argue not merely because they thought Gentiles do not need to become Jews, but because they thought it was impossible for a Gentile to turn into a Jew. And as we saw last week, nowhere does the Torah explicitly present circumcision as an entrance requirement for non-Israelites to become Israelites or anything like that. That's We don't see that sort of thing in the Torah. Circumcision is given as a prerequisite to partaking of certain sacrificial meat, like the Passover lamb, but that would have had little bearing on the vast majority of Gentile believers in the first century who, li- who lived outside of the land of Israel, right? They're not close to the temple. They would never have occasion to eat sacrificial meat. Uh, So, in other words, when the apostles say that Gentile believers need not be circumcised, they're not going against Torah, right? It's not, we're rejecting Torah because, you know, we don't think that's necessary. It's they're debating an internal Jewish debate and taking a stand um, that's within, uh, it's about how we interpret Torah, not whether or not to even bother following Torah. What's more is that the apostles are not excluding Gentiles from observing Torah by saying they don't need to be circumcised. It's possible for an uncircumcised Gentile to follow Torah without being circumcised. Uh, and this this last point, 
is what was that's what was the, the primary focus of my thesis that I submitted a few months ago at Briarcrest. Uh, this goes against the grain of the way most people interpret Acts 15. In recent decades, scholars have begun to realize that Luke-Acts has a very positive view of Torah and that the early believers remained faithful to Torah. Uh, Acts is clear about this, right? And many scholars are now willing to acknowledge that Luke expects Jewish believers to follow Torah, but most still interpret Acts 15 as essentially dispensing with Torah for Gentiles. So here's the logic as, as they see it. They argue that first century Judaism, like later rabbinic Judaism, held that the Torah is just for Jews. It doesn't apply to Gentiles. When the apostles exempted Gentile believers from circumcision in Acts 15, it meant that they did not have to become Jews. They could be saved as Gentiles. Therefore, Acts 15 means that Gentile believers are not supposed to keep Torah because it does not apply to them. That's the logic behind uh, this common uh, way of interpreting Acts 15. The keystone of this interpretation is the assumption here, this, this first premise, that, uh, that first century Jews commonly regarded the Torah to be inapplicable to Gentiles, right? Instead, uh, it's assumed Gentiles were expected to follow something like the Noahide laws. Jews are supposed to keep Torah, Gentiles are supposed to keep the Noahide laws. This is how these scholars reconstruct the Second Temple Jewish uh, position. Uh, many, many scholars interpret Acts 15 as saying precisely that. The four prohibitions in Acts 15 are seen as an early example of the Noahide laws or something similar. Uh, Jewish believers are supposed to keep Torah. Gentile believers are supposed to keep the four prohibitions. So there's this distinction between them. Um, Gentiles, they're not supposed to keep Torah, right? They keep the four prohibitions instead. This is a common assumption that's taught uh, by many, even within the Messianic Jewish movement. Um, there's a number of uh, major organizations uh, and ministries, teaching ministries and authors that have uh, argued for something, essentially something like that, right? But there are a couple of major problems with this assumption. And to understand why, we need to take a look at the Noahide laws. So that's what we're going to uh, tackle first today. Before we get back to Acts 15, we need to talk a little bit about the Noahide laws and what they are and all that. So the earliest uh, the earliest evidence we have for the Noahide laws uh, comes from the Tosefta. So this is like, you know, around the year 300 CE. So like 250 years after Acts 15, uh, we have this passage in the Tosefta, Tractate Avodazara, says, concerning seven religious requirements were the children of Noah admonished, setting up courts of justice, idolatry, blasphemy, fornication, bloodshed, thievery, and a limb cut from a living beast. Uh, so this is the 
these these seven laws have become known as the Noahide laws, the laws incumbent upon the children of Noah. As ostensibly, these seven laws are considered to be the laws that apply to all humanity. Uh, the idea that God gave commandments to Noah and his sons is based on Genesis chapter 9. Uh, let's take a quick look there. In Genesis chapter 9, we have, this is uh, right after the flood, Noah comes out of the ark, God makes a covenant with Noah, and he gives him uh, some instruction here at the beginning of chapter 1. Uh, he says to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, the fear of you shall, and the dread shall be on every beast, uh, every bird of the heaven. So animals are going to be afraid of you. Either into your hand, they're going to be delivered and they'll be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, uh, from his fellow man, I will require, will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Um, and that's kind, of, that's kind of the gist of it there. So where are the Noahide laws in this passage? <laughs> we, we have... Uh, we, we have one commandment, at least, for sure, uh, that you shall not eat meat with its blood. You're not supposed to eat meat with blood in it, right? That uh, seems to be the most straightforward way of interpreting uh, this. Uh, it does say be fruitful and multiply. Uh, this, uh, there is evidence that... Uh, not like early Jews didn't consider that to be a commandment necessarily. This is more like a blessing, permission and blessing to go out and fill the earth, right? Um, but yeah, if we go back to our list, uh, setting up courts of justice, is that in the passage? Maybe if you squint a little bit and look at verse five, you're talking about requiring a reckoning for lifeblood. Uh, the, the problem is it doesn't necessarily say that uh, you're supposed to require a reckoning for lifeblood, right? So this is not an explicit commandment to set up a court of justice. How about uh, idolatry? Uh, well, there's really nothing about idolatry there. Blasphemy? No, nothing really about that. Fornication? Well, maybe be fruitful and multiply. Does that apply to fornication? I don't know. Not really, right? Bloodshed? Well, it does say, you know, it doesn't explicitly um, say do not murder, but that's implied, right? It's, uh, there's a strong, strong command here against shedding the blood of humans. Um, and then thievery, uh, that's, that's not really there. Limb cut from a living beast. Uh, this one, ironically, that's the only one of these seven commandments that the rabbis actually tie to these to this passage. Uh, it's only that last, that seventh one, that the rabbis derive from Genesis chapter 9. Uh, where do they derive the other six? Actually, from Genesis chapter 2, where God, it says, the Lord God commanded Adam... And they take those words as and, and are able through a very creative exegesis to derive these other commandments. Uh, we, yeah, I don't have 
uh, I won't go down that rabbit hole right now, but uh, the, the point is that th these are not uh, biblical commandments given to Noah, right, in, in scripture. They're, they're all, uh, I think we could say these are all good things, right? But nowhere in scripture are these commandments given to Noah and his sons. Nowhere in scripture are they um, even put together in, in a list anywhere. Uh, we don't see these seven as being of particular concern. Uh, and actually, rabbinic literature shares that there were dozens of different opinions as to exactly how many Noahide laws they were, there were and, and what they were. Uh, even this passage in the Tosefta, if you read it, it goes on to say, and this rabbi said, also, this is a Noahide com commandment. And, and then this other rabbi gives another one. And they keep adding more and more. Uh, one opinion is that there were as many as 30 Noahide commandments. Uh, there's even an opinion uh, somewhere in the Talmud that says that uh, at, at some point in the future, the Noahides will accept upon themselves all the commandments. So there's a lot of ambiguity here about exactly what are the Noahide laws and where they came up. But this is this list of seven is the list that eventually won out, right? Um, this is this was considered uh, the final list for for um, centuries later. That was what was received as the Noahide laws. So what's the purpose? Why did why did the rabbis come up with these seven laws if they're not explicitly found in scripture? What uh, you know, at least not in that order or not in one place? Why did they say you know these are commandments for the sons of Noah? Well, the purpose of the Noahide laws in rabbinic literature is to halakhically distinguish between Jew and Gentile. Torah is for Jews only, and Gentiles have their own separate set of laws. Uh, and in fact. Uh, some major streams in rabbinic literature take that further to the point that Gentiles are not supposed to keep anything other than these seven. If if Gentiles try to keep more Torah, that's bad. Uh, that's the, uh, that's a threat to this distinction between Jew and Gentile. In fact, the Talmud famously declares that a Gentile who keeps the Sabbath is worthy of death. Uh, Maimonides sums up the prevailing consensus like this. He says, the principle of the matter is that we do not permit Gentiles to innovate a religious law or to adopt commandments for themselves based on their own reasoning, but he should either become a gertzedek, meaning a full convert uh, to Judaism, and accept all the commandments, or else he should stick to his own Noahide law and not add to it or subtract from it. And if he engages in Torah or observes the Sabbath or innovates in any way, then we beat him and punish him and inform him that he is liable to the death penalty for this. Uh, that's from uh, Maimonides' Mishnah Torah. So the difference here is circumcision. If a Gentile is not circumcised, he is excluded from Torah and he gets his own separate category of laws instead. Uh, if he chooses to become circumcised as part of the rabbinic conversion ceremony, then he uh, is, is obligated to keep the whole Torah, right? But there's this clear-cut line distinguishing Jews and, and converts on the one hand from Gentiles on the other hand. All right, so that's this is the attitude in rabbinic literature, right? From like a, a couple hundred years after the time of Yeshua and the apostles. 
there's a huge contrast between this attitude that we see in rabbinic literature, third century onward, and the attitude that we see from texts in the Second Temple era and from the first century. Our sources suggest that in the first century, there is widespread Gentile attraction to Judaism. Gentiles were flocking in droves to follow the God of Israel and his Torah. And these texts uh, suggest that the commandments they were most attracted to were precisely those things that the later rabbinic Jews regarded as off limits for Gentiles, the Sabbath, the festivals, and the dietary laws. These were the things that were most attractive to Gentiles. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but here's just a, a brief list of some passages from Philo and Josephus that give us a little taste of some of this. So Philo, he, uh, he boasts that not only the Jews, but that also of almost every other nation, and especially those who make the greatest account of virtue, have dedicated themselves to embrace the laws of Moses. So he's, he's, uh, talking about how, how great the Torah is, how great Moses was as a legislator. You know, he's way better than all those uh, Greek and Roman legislators. And here's one of the reasons why is because it's not just Jews who keep Torah, but so many people from all these different nations uh, are embracing Torah because uh, it's just such a great law. It's just such a great set of commandments, right? Uh, he goes on, our laws, which Moses has given to us, lead after them and influence all nations, barbarians and Greeks, the inhabitants of continents and islands, the Eastern nations and the Western Europe and Asia, in short, the whole habitable world from one extremity to the other. He's exaggerating a little bit here in his description, but it's, uh, um, you know, he can, you can tell he, he is very fond of this trend, right? For what man is there who does not honor that sacred seventh day, granting in consequence a relief and relaxation from labor for himself and for all those who are near to him, and that not only to free men only, but also to slaves and even to beasts of burden. So, so here he's claiming that um, the observance of Shabbat has become a widespread practice due to, uh, you know, Jewish people uh, observing Shabbat and Gentiles seeing that and being like, hey, that's a great idea. I want to try keeping the Sabbath. So all these Gentiles are being attracted to Sabbath observance, right? And again, who is there who does not pay all due respect and honor to that which is called the fast? Uh, and he's talking about uh, Yom Kippur, right? Uh, and that beauty and dignity of the legislation of Moses is honored not only among the Jews, on, on, not among the Jews only, but also by all other nations, right? Uh, and then here's his grand conclusion. Uh, in this way, those admirable and incomparable and most desirable laws were made known to all people. Um, and he goes on and... Uh, um, and this too at a period when the nation, meaning the Jewish people, had not been prosperous for a long time. So he's admitting that the Jewish people have not been like a super powerful empire or anything like that. They've been, uh, you know, often an oppressed people. And yet still all these other nations and ethnicities are being drawn to and attracted to, um, to the Torah in spite of the lowliness of the Jews. And he says... Um, and then if they make any fresh start and begin to improve, 
how great is the increase of their renown and glory. I think that in that case, every nation abandoning all their own individual customs and utterly disregarding their national laws would change and come over to the honor of such a people only for their laws shining in connection with and simultaneously with the prosperity of the nation will obscure all others just as the rising sun obscures the stars. So Philo has this vision of the future where one day the Jewish people will not be this low, lowly, uh, subjected, oppressed nation, but they will become this prosperous people. And then, I mean, just think about how attracted people will be to Torah then. At that point, everyone's going to stop doing their own customs and just follow Torah. This is, this is uh, Philo's vision for a glorious future, right? Any hint in here? Do you detect anything in here suggesting that these uncircumcised Gentiles should should shy away from things like the Sabbath, the festivals, the dietary laws because they're not circumcised? Uh, that they uh, you know they should just keep the Noahide laws. There's nothing of that in there, right? Um, no hint that uh, there's supposed to be a distinction between the Torah as observed by, by Jews and the Torah as observed by non-Jews. Okay, here's some excerpts from Josephus, a couple random places. He Josephus brags, also brags about how many people are being attracted to Torah. He talks about how the people of Damascus distrusted their own wives since almost all of them were drawn away to Jewish religious practices. Uh, again, this is probably a bit of an exaggeration, but it's there must be some substance to what Josephus is saying for him to make such a, a wild claim, right? Uh, apparently, uh, especially for women, Torah was really attractive. The Jews continually lead a great multitude of Greeks to their religious observances, thereby making them in a certain manner a portion of themselves. Uh, and he says, many of the Greeks have come over to our laws. Our laws have been such as have always inspired admiration and imitation into all other men. And... The multitude of mankind itself have had a great inclination of a long time to follow our religious observances, for there is not any city of the Grecians, nor of the, any of the barbarians, nor any nation whatsoever, whither our custom of resting on the seventh day hath not come, and by which our fasts and lighting up lamps and many of our prohibitions as to our food are not observed. They also endeavor to imitate our mutual concord with one another, and he goes on. Um, so, and he, he, this is interesting. Um, what here is a matter of greatest admiration. Our law hath no bait of pleasure to allure men to it, but it prevails by its own force. And as God himself pervades all the world, so hath our law passed through all the world also. So there's a number of interesting things that Josephus claims here. Uh, he, and again, he's, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but he, he says that, Things like the Sabbath, the festivals. Again, he mentions fasts, right? Yom Kippur and presumably other fasts. Lighting lamps, uh, presumably for the Sabbath. Uh, prohibitions about food. These are the things that have spread to every city of the inhabited world, as far as he's concerned. There's, there's not a single city where you don't find Gentiles being attracted and drawn to observe these sorts of things. Precisely the things that the later rabbis said Gentiles are not supposed to keep, right? Yeah, we could go on. Uh, there's there's this really cool story about the conversion of King Izates of Adiabene. 
there was a Jewish merchant named Ananias who uh, had some influence in the royal family of Adiabene. This is a country um, kind of uh, between the Roman and uh, Parthian empires up north. And um, in, in, in this uh, instance, um, the Azates, the king, uh, ends up becoming convinced and uh, and starts to follow the God of Israel and starts to keep Torah. And he decides that he wants to become circumcised. And both his mother, who is also keeping Torah, uh, and, and this Jewish man, Ananias, both counsel him against becoming circumcised because they realize that this is a, that would be a dangerous political move for him. Uh, and so, uh, Ananias, uh, so so yeah, King Izates decides, okay, I won't become circumcised. And Ananias says something very interesting. He says, you know, as long as you uh, zealously keep the entire Torah, um, you know, that's all that matters. That's more important than circumcision for you, right? Which is interesting. Uh, that implies a couple things. First of all, it implies that it was it's possible for a Gentile like Izates to observe Torah without being circumcised. Um, secondly, it demonstrates that uh, some Jews were willing to see circumcision as not a Torah requirement for a Gentile, right? Um, of course, the story goes on to describe this other Jewish person, a Galilean man named Eliezer, who comes and tells the king, what are you doing? Why aren't you circumcised? Look, you're you're breaking Torah by not being circumcised. And thereupon, Izates goes and calls in the royal surgeon and has the the gets the deed done, as Josephus puts it. Um, so it, it's a fascinating story because here we have... A, a lot of scholars have noticed so many parallels between that story and Acts 15. We have two different Jewish opinions, one that says circumcision is necessary, and the other that says that, no, it's not necessary. Um, but what's interesting is that for Ananias, Izatis is still supposed to keep Torah. By not being circumcised, that doesn't place him in a different legal category where now he only keeps the Noahide laws, right? He's still expected to observe Torah. Okay, I could give you other examples. Um, I hope it, this is enough to demonstrate that first century Jews were more than happy to see Gentiles embracing Torah. Um, if you want to uh, explore this topic, and I actually go in much more depth in my thesis, so feel free to check that out. Uh, the point is there's no hint in any of these Jewish texts that Gentiles would be better off avoiding the Sabbath, the dietary laws, things like that, until they're circumcised, right? There's no sense that those are off limits for uncircumcised Gentiles. Uh, not only that, uh, but there's also zero evidence for anything resembling the Noahide laws. Uh, a number of scholars are going to suggest that the Noah, there's evidence for the Noahide laws in the book of Jubilees. That is not true. Uh, I go into that in depth in my thesis as well, and uh, we don't have time to follow that rabbit hole any further. But we'll just say, um, yeah, if you want to learn more about that, there's, there's resources I can point you to. Okay. So if, if the Noahide laws didn't exist before the rabbinic era, 
why did the rabbis make up these laws? You know, why did they suddenly decide that Torah is just for Jews and Gentiles shouldn't keep Torah? Uh, I think, and a uh, number of uh, significant scholars also think this, I think they're right. The Noahide laws arose as a rabbinic reaction to Christianity. To be more specific, I would argue that the rabbis came up with the Noahide laws as a reaction to non-Jewish followers of Yeshua who were keeping Torah. They saw this as a threat, right? All these, all these Christians who were following Torah. It's like, and, and they're like, what do you, you know, that that threatened their sense of identity. So they formed these separate categories, a separate category of laws for Gentiles, right? It's kind of uh it's kind of ironic that on the one side, you have the church fathers arguing fiercely that Christians should not keep Torah. And on the other side, you have the rabbis arguing fiercely that Gentiles should not keep Torah. And the very fact that these arguments exist suggests that there were Gentile followers of Yeshua keeping Torah. And the religious leaders on both sides were uncomfortable with that. Okay, to, to kind of wrap up this conversation about the Noahide laws, we do have to address one final thing. And that is that uh, even, you know, some people, some scholars or interpreters, if they've followed me this far, would still say, yeah, but there is evidence for the Noahide laws in the first century, and that's in Acts 15. You look at the four prohibitions, and they sound exactly like the Noahide laws. Well, let's let's take a close look. Let's line them up and see. So here's the seven Noahide laws, setting up courts of justice, idolatry, blasphemy, fornication, bloodshed, thievery, limb cut from a living beast. Here's the four prohibitions in Acts 15. We have idle food, blood, strangled things, and sexual immorality. You can kind of see how um, like idle food and idolatry, those are those are similar, right? Blood, bloodshed. We have strangled things and a limb, limb cut from a living beast. We have sexual immorality and fornication. So, so you know, some scholars are going to argue that four of the seven Noahide laws show up in Acts 15. And this is evidence that the Noahide laws did exist back then. Uh, of course, if you look a little closer, the, the parallels are not quite as exact as we would like them to be. So for example, there's a bit of a difference between idle food and idolatry, right? Uh, idle food is, is, I mean, to be precise, it's a dietary commandment. Uh, idolatry is much more all-encompassing. And yeah, they're, they're kind of related, but they're not really the same thing, right? It's, um, idle food is much more specific there's a much more specific issue that the apostles are trying to address here, it seems, right? Okay, so that one's a little fuzzy. Well, um, blood and bloodshed, actually, that one's pretty fuzzy too, because in the context of Acts 15, the prohibition of blood is talking about eating blood. You're not allowed to eat blood. Um, and so that's not quite the same as bloodshed, is it? Bloodshed is a prohibition of murder. So that's actually, there's actually no parallel there. Uh, in fact, uh, in uh, according to the Jewish conception of the Noahide laws, the sons of Noah are allowed to eat blood. Um, Maimonides is very clear about this, actually. He explicitly states, uh, Noahide can eat blood, even blood from a living animal. 
uh, while the animal's still alive, uh, consuming the blood. That's perfectly fine for a Noahide. So when the apostles prohibit the consumption of blood to Gentiles, that's a much higher standard than what Noahides were held to in rabbinic literature. Um, and then again, strangled things and a limb cut from a living beast are uh, actually quite different. So, okay, we need to talk a little bit more about this limb cut from a living beast. Um, the torn limb, the law of the torn limb, they call it. Uh, this this law is derived from this passage in Genesis 9. Uh, Genesis 9, verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You might think, well, this is a prohibition of eating blood. Well, yeah, it is, but that's not how the rabbis interpreted it. Uh, through some creative exegesis, they decided that this is actually talking about uh, going up to an animal chopping off one of its limbs while it's still alive and then going and eating that because you know you can't eat a good animal all at once right <laughs> um and so they're saying that noah hides aren't allowed to do that and they get it from this verse uh so they say noah hides are allowed to eat blood but they're not allowed to eat a limb cut off of a living animal strangled things like we saw last week is actually a much uh a much more advanced category, a, a much more advanced dietary prohibition. In the Torah, this encompasses the categories of nevelah and terefa, right? So nevelah is an animal carcass, an animal that you find dead, roadkill, carrion, that sort of thing, right? Uh, terefa is an animal that has been mortally wounded. Uh, it's an animal that's sick, an animal that's been injured, um, but still alive, right? Uh, so going and slaughtering it, uh, it's it's prohibited to be eaten. The fact that the apostles prohibit that for Gentiles, this is a much higher standard than anything um, in the Noahide laws. Uh, it's much higher than anything that the rabbis expected of Gentiles. So there's really no parallel there. So basically, the only parallels we have are um, sexual immorality, fornication, right? That's pretty much the same thing. And and kind of uh, idle food and idolatry are similar, right? So we, we have one and a half parallels, one and a half things in common between these two lists. I'm going to suggest that this is not enough to demonstrate that the Noahide laws existed in the first century. And it's also not enough to say that there is any connection between the four prohibitions in Acts 15 and the Noahide laws. Okay, so if the four prohibitions aren't related to the Noahide laws, then what are they and what is their purpose? What was the rationale behind their selection? Let's go back to Acts 15. Um, so James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. Um, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. This word uh, polluted, alisgematon, is uh, often associated, it's a, a dietary kind of term. Uh, we, we often see that. This is the same term used in the Septuagint to translate when Daniel refused to defile himself with the king's food, right? Uh, why was it that Daniel would not eat the king's 
meat and wine from the king's table and insisted on eating on eating only vegetables and drinking water because it would have been defiled by idolatry, right? Uh, the wine would have been poured out in libation to idols. The meat would have been meat that had previously been sacrificed to idols. And so it was, it was defiled, right? That's why Daniel didn't eat it. It wasn't because he thought, it wasn't because he was a Seventh-day Adventist and said, you're not allowed to drink alcohol. <laughs> um, that, that wasn't Daniel's motivation, right? It also wasn't because that diet is so much healthier for you. In fact, the point of the story is that contrary to natural, uh, what you would naturally expect from someone eating only vegetables and water, God miraculously enabled Daniel and his friends to thrive. Um, not sure why I got off on that tangent. Anyway, <laughs> point is we've got uh, idle food, sexual immorality, things strangled, and blood. Note that most of the Gentile believers in the book of Acts were already God-fearers prior to their faith in Yeshua, right? We talked about that, um, I think, a couple weeks ago. So these God-fearers were already keeping these laws and probably much more, right? Uh, jump down to, uh, where is it here? Um, when when Paul and Barnabas go back up to Antioch and they deliver, they deliver the letter from the apostles that contains the four prohibitions in it. It says when the people in Antioch had read it, this is in verse 31, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, wh why, why did they rejoice? Right. If they're like, you know, well, we don't want to have to keep any of that burdensome law. And then Paul and Barnabas come and they're like, well, good news and bad news you know, we made it so you guys don't have to be circumcised, but you still have to keep some of the law. And you know, here's four prohibitions. It wasn't like that, right? These, these would have been things they were already keep, keeping. That's why they rejoiced. This was encouraging because this letter demonstrated that these Gentile believers were accepted as full members of the community of faith uh, as they were, right? And so what I'm suggesting is that these four represent a baseline God-fearer standard, right? This is like, uh, you know, the minimum, uh, the minimum standard that could make you a God-fearer. The problem with God-fearers, uh, sympathizers, whatever term you want to use, is that they were not a clearly defined category in early Judaism. Uh, there was no minimum standard whereby you pass this threshold and now you're officially a God-fearer, right? In theory, someone could be dabbling into Sabbath observance and then going and worshiping Zeus or whatever, right, at the same time. And, and uh, there, there was not a clear uh, break necessarily, right? And so the apostles wanted to ensure that there was that clear break. Uh, they wanted to ensure that those new believers coming in who are not already from familiar with Torah, that they have a starting place, right? Um, of course, these four prohibitions are, uh, the apostles expected Gentiles to be keeping far more than just that, right? We're missing important commandments like honor your father and mother, prohibitions against stealing, murder. It's not a comprehensive legal code. Uh, it's a starting point for introducing a newbie to Torah observance. Uh, and I think there's clear corroboration of that in verse 21. 
So as soon as uh, James says these four prohibitions, he goes on in verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Uh, this verse has puzzled many interpreters. One scholar refers to it as, quote, one of the most difficult verses of the New Testament. <laughs> um, I think the reason why they struggle with this verse is because they're unwilling to accept what I think is the obvious implication. Uh, I think the most obvious way to interpret it is that James expected Gentile believers to learn Torah as they heard it in the, as they read it in the synagogue. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of interpreters are going to have a problem with that because they're going to say, well, the whole point of the book of Acts is to demonstrate how the early believers left the synagogue and started their own separate churches. Did you know that that very, very seldom happens in the book of Acts? Um, we talked a bit about this in a uh, previous session, but there is very little, um, very few times in the book of Acts does it say that the believers left the synagogue to start their own assembly. In fact, that only happens twice. Uh, there are two times in the book of Acts where it talks about the believers leaving the synagogue to go start a different community. One of them is in Acts 18, uh, verse 7. Let's take a quick look at that because this will be, will be helpful to see some of these verses. Okay, so this is in Corinth, the city of Corinth. And um, there, you know, Paul is teaching in the synagogue and... Uh, there's people that opposed him and he shook out his garments and said, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Um, so here we have an example where the believers, uh, at least Paul, presumably other believers went with him. They leave the synagogue to start their own assembly. Um, you know, some people are going to say, well, this is, you know, they're, they're leaving the Jewish synagogue and starting a Christian church. It's not that simple, is it? Uh, if you look, first of all, Titius Justice is described as a civil menu tontheon, a worshiper of God, a, a God-fearer, right? This is a guy who was already attending the synagogue. He's already following the God of Israel. He's already keeping Torah. And What's more, his house is next door to the synagogue. I think that's uh, a bit comical, actually, I think. And I probably Luke thought it was as well. And that's why he threw that detail in there. Um, and then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So, so, you know, let's get this straight. Yeah, this is the house of a Gentile, but this isn't any ordinary Gentile. This is a God-following, Torah-keeping Gentile. His house is right next to the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue is part of the congregation. You know, at, at most we can say Luke is depicting the believers setting up a rival synagogue. They're not abandoning the synagogue and the synagogue structure to establish a completely different venue. The same thing I think can be said of the only other instance where we read of believers leaving the synagogue to start something else. And that's in Acts 19 verse nine. Um, this is in Ephesus, 
It says, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks. Um, so it's not, it's not entirely clear what all this entails. Are they starting a different congregation? Did all the believers gather in the Hall of Tyrannus from this time, from this point forward? Did they continue going to the synagogue? It's not clear what's going on, right? So it's a little fuzzy. Um, but at the most, I think, you know, again, the most we could say is that the believers are establishing a rival synagogue. So throughout the book of Acts, we read of believers meeting in homes and gathering in synagogues, and these two venues existing concurrently, side by side, they're doing both, right? Meeting in homes is a supplement to synagogue attendance, not a replacement for it in, uh, in the book of Acts. So when, when James talks about Moses being read every Sabbath in the synagogues, this should not be seen as, you know, talking, oh, that's just talking about the Jews. The Christians wouldn't be listening to this Moses read in the Sabbath. And say, well, actually, yes, they would. The followers of Yeshua were still part of the synagogue cycle. They were still attending this, uh, the synagogues on the Sabbath. And it's interesting, um, the book of James so, so this this is the Apostle James, the brother of Yeshua, is, is saying this. If we go over to the book of James, he also talks about gathering in synagogues. Um, James 2, verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your synagogue, synagogue, this English translation helpfully translates it as assembly so that we might we wouldn't get confused and think he's actually talking about the believers meeting in synagogues because that would be weird right actually it is the word synagogue right so james is not afraid to assume that gent that that followers of yeshua continue to meet in synagogues and you know even if their synagogue is uh as even if they have to leave the conventional Jewish synagogue to start their own congregation, it's it's still a synagogue, right? It's not, there isn't this dichotomy of terminology going on in the book of Acts. Okay, so, so some interesting things here. You know, Gentiles have, uh, Gentiles who join the community, they're going to be exposed to more Torah, right? What does that imply? They're going to have the opportunity to grow and learn more. Um, that means that these four rules are just a starting point. They're not meant to be the, the they're not the maximum Torah that Gentiles are supposed to keep. They're, uh, they're just the starting point for Torah observance. Yeah, so if we go back to verse five, uh, if you recall, there's two different, two different, um, two different statements of the position of the circumcisers, right? So we've got these guys come down from Judea in verse one, Acts 15, verse one, they're teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Here, the focus is completely on circumcision. There's nothing about 
and you have to keep Torah too. Uh, I mean, obviously these these people would expect Torah observance as well, but that's not the point. So when Paul and Barnabas are arguing with them, they're not arguing against Torah observance. That, that's not that's not under discussion at at this stage, right? Then when we get down to verse five, this is in Jerusalem. The, these people from the party of the Pharisees rise up and say it's necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Here, the Torah of Moses comes into play as well. Ha, at What's supposed to be the relationship between these Gentile believers and Torah, right? I mean, a lot of these Gentiles are already keeping Torah, but what about those from a completely pagan background? Are they expected to have their Torah observance 100% up to snuff before we let them in the doors? Like, how is this supposed to work? I think the Jerusalem Council is addressing this claim of the Pharisees, circumcision and Torah. And I believe James addresses those two in turn. In verses 19 and 20, James addresses this entrance requirement of circumcision, right? We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but tell them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled in blood. That stands in lieu of, of requiring circumcision, right? Verse 21 responds to the, the uh, uh, proposal that the Gentiles have to have their Torah observance perfect before they can be let in. James says, no. Um, the the synagogue is where they can learn more Torah, right? This is the opportunity for them to come in on the Sabbath and learn more as they go. Um, so there's two different things being responded to here, right? When we get to the letter that comes later, uh, this letter is sent to the community in Antioch, and it is responding solely to what we see in verse 1, right? The believers in Antioch, this is what they heard. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're already attending the synagogue on the Sabbath, so they don't need that part to be emphasized. They didn't hear the Pharisees saying this, so they don't need to hear everything that James said about that. Uh, instead, the focus is on you know, since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, though we gave them no instructions, uh, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And it goes on, and then it repeats, uh, abstaining from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. So it's emphasizing the those four rules. And those four stand in lieu of the requirement of circumcision, right? So instead of being required to become circumcised, here's a baseline. Here's a starting point for your Torah observance. I think this is why the, um, well, I think there are multiple reasons why, and really ultimately it's the Holy Spirit is the reason why the apostles chose these four rules. But I think there's significance to the fact that these four rules come from the very heart of the Torah, Leviticus 17 and 18. If, if, if the heart of the Torah offers a starting point, then, you know, observance can grow out from there in both directions, right? I think that's a beautiful picture that, that we have there. 
Okay. Uh, one other verse we should probably address before we wrap up on on uh, Acts 15, because this is one that a lot of people who are going to say, no, 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 this whole chapter is is saying that Torah doesn't matter anymore. A lot of them are going to point to verse 10. This is in the middle of Peter's speech. So before James talks, Peter has a speech. Uh, he says, um, Brothers, you know that in the early days, this is in verse 7, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This is, Peter's referring back to the Cornelius incident, right? And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Yeshua, just as they will. Okay, this is an important uh, passage because some people are going to interpret this as saying, well, the Torah is, a, is an unbearable yoke. It's a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. So Peter here is saying that no one can keep Torah. We've tried, we've failed, it just doesn't work. Why are you trying to make Gentiles keep Torah if even we Jews can't keep Torah? There's several problems with that interpretation. Of course, the biggest one is the fact that throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see the apostles and uh and many other people keeping Torah, right? What does it say in, uh, go all the way back to Acts chapter, sorry, back to Luke chapter one, all the way back to the beginning of Luke Acts. In um, when it's talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So according to Luke here, the Torah is not impossible to keep, right? How do we reconcile this? Uh, another problem is that from, uh, if you look at all early Jewish literature, you never get the sentiment that Jews felt that their, that keeping Torah was an impossible burden. Uh, here's a quote. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll, I'll read it to you. This is a quote from Amy Jill Levine. Uh, she says, as, as part of a broader theological view that contrasts Jewish law with Christian grace, some Christians conclude that the law, the Torah, is impossible to follow. In actuality, Jews then and now did not find Torah observance any more burdensome than citizens in most countries find their country's laws today. As Deuteronomy 30 verse 11 states, surely this commandment that I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you. To follow Torah is not a burden, but a blessing. Amy Gillivine is a, a New Testament, a Jewish New Testament scholar, and I think she brings an important uh, correction to some misinterpretations of passages like, like this. Uh, and, and some scholars have acknowledged that, you know, that's not really a, a, something a, a Jew would say. And so they say, well, Luke must have made it up. Luke must have made the whole, the whole chapter up. None of this never actually happened. And they take it as proof because because Peter calls, supposedly calls the Torah a yoke, an unbearable yoke, and no Jew would ever say that. Maybe, maybe they've misinterpreted this verse, is what I would suggest. 
maybe we don't need to throw out this this uh, chapter. Luke places a similar theological point in the mouth of Paul a few chapters earlier. Uh, let's take a look at Acts 13, and we'll we'll wrap it up as we look at these verses. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this, so this is Paul is preaching in a synagogue, and he's talking about Yeshua. Through this man, through Yeshua, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the Torah of Moses. Or another way of translating it is, um, Forgiveness of sins are proclaimed to you even from all things from which you are unable to be justified in the law of Moses. This verse, this verse is not putting down the Torah. It's simply pointing out why Torah observance alone is not enough. It, we need Yeshua in order to be saved, right? Yeshua is the way of salvation. Uh, it does, uh, here's uh, uh, Wilson um, S.G. Wilson writes, he puts it this way, it does not follow that the law has been done away with or that it no longer has a role to play in Jewish or Jewish Christian piety. It means simply that the law on its own is an inadequate vehicle of salvation, right? So the Torah on its own is not the way to salvation. Yeshua is the way to salvation. And, and this, this verse is pointing that out. I think Peter's making the same point here. The unbearable yoke is not Torah, but it's attempting to reach, attain salvation aside from Yeshua, right? Saying that circumcision is the way to salvation, that's an unbearable yoke. Saying that any list of rules is the way to attain salvation is an unbearable yoke. It's only through, and that's, what, that's how Peter ends it, only through the grace of our Lord Yeshua that we are saved and that Gentiles are saved. And it's the same for Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction between us and them. Our hearts are cleansed by faith, right? So what Peter's objecting to is imposing anything as a salvation requirement aside from Yeshua. But if there's really no distinction between us and them, if there's really no distinction between Jew and Gentile, then why would we say that there's a distinction between Jew and Gentile in terms of Torah observance, that Jews keep Torah and Gentiles shouldn't, right? Okay, let's, let's wrap up here. So when we're talking about Torah in the context of the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament, you know, there's, there's a lot, obviously, there are a lot of commandments in the Torah, right? Um, some of the commandments in the Torah were held in common with, you know, Greco-Roman morality, like, you know, do not murder, do not steal. These are things that you know, a lot of cultures hold in common, right? Uh, values. And so uh, there's nothing, you know, obviously, that's not a controversial issue for Torah. Um, a lot of the Torah uh, pertains specifically to the temple. And so outside the land of Israel or today without a temple, it's not possible to observe certain commandments, right? 
sacrificial laws, certain purity regulations, uh, certain commandments pertaining specifically to the land of Israel, things like that. There are also many commandments of the Torah that were unique to the Jewish people in the first century, but which later Christianity also retained, such as the Torah's sexual laws. That, that was not the norm in Greco-Roman culture. Uh, if we set aside those, those laws, what we're left with is the, the, the biggest categories are the Sabbath, the festivals, and the dietary laws, right? This is what's primarily at stake when we're talking about, is the Torah still valid for believers today or is it not? We're asking, do the Sabbath, the festivals, and the dietary laws still apply? That's, that's the biggest thing that separates historical Christianity from Judaism in terms of practice, and that's the biggest thing at stake if we're trying to talk about does the Torah still apply? Look at the four prohibitions. Three of them are dietary. So to suggest that dietary laws are set aside doesn't make sense. And in fact, you look at the four prohibitions, uh, the dietary laws that are in there are just about everything the Torah has to say about diet, except for the explicit distinction between clean and unclean animal. So if there was, say, a Gentile who already was not eating pork, uh, the four prohibitions would bring his kashrut, his kosher keeping, up to the same level as most Jews in the first century. The Sabbath and festivals, I mean, look at the context of in which they're found, right? James assumes that the believers are continuing to meet on the Sabbath. And throughout Acts, we see that same assumption in place. So even if there's no explicit commandment to abstain from the meat of unclean animals, there's no explicit commandment to keep the Sabbath, both the content and the context of the four prohibitions are suggestive of further observance in those areas. Uh, at the very least, we can say there's nothing in this chapter suggesting these things are off limits for Gentiles. Instead, uh, this offers an entry point for Gentiles into Torah observance. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him. And together, may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.